It's good to be back with you. I'm thankful to Zach uh, for, for covering me last week. I heard that he did a good job. Got you guys out by 1130. It's not going to happen today. Just kidding. He didn't do it. But good news, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. That's really the theme of today's sermon. It's really the theme of every sermon. But in particular, today, as we look at Exodus 14 and the crossing of the Red Sea, we're seeing God make those words come true. That as God's enemies approach His people and desire to do them harm, they are shaken to the core. And yet God says as He walks them through the Red Sea, I will never, no never, no never forsake the people who lean on me. Never. We need that gospel never. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 14, please. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the, in the racks in front of you. Page 56 is where you will find Exodus chapter 14. Let's give attention to God's word. We're going to read the whole chapter, so I know it'll be long, but it all comes together. So if you would, just, uh, just bear with me. This is God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what have we done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him and took 600 chosen chariots with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pihiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord 
will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheel so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water will come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord shook off the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And so the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they trusted, believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That's God's word. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Let's pray that he would apply that sword to our hearts. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for this episode. God, if we saw it, we would not believe it. And it may be that for some of us, we've heard it or read it so often that it's uh, power has lost its luster. Its, its miracle is no longer miraculous. Lord, I pray that you would come and that you would make this come alive, make this word, make this episode come alive for us, that we, like Israel, would see your salvation, that you work for us. Help us to see and to know and to believe that you fight for us, and we have but to remain silent. Would you bless the reading and the hearing and now the preaching of your holy word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Uh, I've already kind of spilled the beans a little bit, right? The, the whole purpose of today's sermon, the main idea that I want to get across is that the Lord brings glory to himself by winning salvation for his people. And we're going to unpack that. But primarily what you need to come away with is that the Lord brings glory to himself by winning salvation for his people. Each one of those words is very important. Primarily, one, because God's glory is the preeminent theme of this chapter. He does this, yes, for his people. He does this, yes, because he loves them. But the ground and root of that love, of that saving act, is his glory. He does this so that his people and really all the world will bring him glory because he so rightly deserves it. We'll talk about that. It's also important that he wins salvation for his people. They do not cooperate in this act. They don't pick up swords or rocks or sticks or anything else. In fact, they're a panicky, watery mess on the seashore. And God says, shut your mouth and just watch. Follow me. Right? So let's unpack this. There's only three episodes And you could even track them with three words, pursuit, panic, and power. Pharaoh's pursuit and God's glory. The people's panic and the blindness of unbelief and God's power and the glorious grace of his salvation. First, Pharaoh's pursuit and God's glory. Uh, if If you've been tracking with this series at all, Um, you, you may remember that a few weeks ago we talked about how God doesn't always lead his people on the path that we think he ought to. Uh, seldom does he actually take his people the short road, right? Um, I think I mentioned, you know, I love, I love Google Maps because it's going to tell me at least what it thinks is the quickest route so I can avoid, right, all of the other routes that are five minutes slower and can go the fastest route. How it calculates that, I have no idea, right? But the, the fastest route for the people is to go northeast. But we looked last week or a couple weeks ago, God said, no, we're not going that way. I'm sending you south. East. We're going through the wilderness. I've got some work to do in you. And what we come to today is the work that God wants to do in him. And he sets this situation up just perfectly. If you were tracking them on a map, right, we saw that, that Israel kind of leaves. They, they, they head southeast into the wilderness and they are leaving the bounds of Egypt. And then God gives a really curious instruction. He says, all right, turn around. And so they Turn around, they turn back, and he says, I want you to set up camp right here in this spot. Now, geographically, we don't know necessarily where all of those words are, but what's pretty clear is that God leaves his people sitting ducks. They are blocked in by the sea. He says, I want you to camp in front of the sea, and as best we can tell, they're kind of pinned in there between mountains. So there's one like narrow passage, there's one passage into where they are. There's no way to get out. God leaves his people. He has them turn around, so it looks like, and he even says, Pharaoh's going to think you're lost. Pharaoh's going to think you're confused, because I have something I need to do With Pharaoh, And so he makes them turn around and encamp in the worst possible place to encamp, right? And that's where they are. Uh, he positions them between a mountain and a sea that is 
twice as big as our Great Lakes put together, right? So that's, that's the situation he puts his people in. And then he moves Pharaoh to continue in his former stubbornness, right? We've talked about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. This has been a progressive thing since before they left Egypt. That God, in each case, right, the, if you'll remember correctly, the, um, when God goes to get Israel out of slavery, he tells Moses, hey, listen, Pharaoh's not just going to, isn't just going to lay down and take this. He's going to fight you on it, right? He's not going to let the people go, and I'm going to break him over time, right? I'm going to send these plagues, but each time, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, right? And what that means is Pharaoh continues in his stubbornness, in his unwillingness to let the people go. And God says, I know that's going to happen. I've, I've orchestrated that. I'm, I'm all over that. And so God moves Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh sees, he gets word of what, of what the people are doing. And it says right there that God changes their hearts. God changes the heart of Pharaoh and his servants to say, what have we done? We've let, we've let our cheap labor go, right? Because they were, they were slaves and they were involved in these massive building projects. And the way that it kind of transpired is eventually, right, at the, at the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh finally relented. He said, okay, get out. And if you remember, the people of Egypt even said, okay, get out, right? They basically chased the people out of the land. But now that the people have been gone and maybe news of work stoppages, all these great things that they were building have come back to them, right? God moves in those circumstances and Pharaoh and his people and his, his court say, oh man, what have we done? We've got to get our help back. Right. We need to we need to re-enslave the Israelites. And what do you know? They're they're lost. They're wandering in the desert. They're they're sitting ducks. We can go get them. And so that's what Pharaoh does. He marshals this massive army to go get this slave people. And so it's important right here that we talk about that. We acknowledge there's a difference between true repentance and temporary regret Right. Or temporary sorrow. Right. There's a difference between being genuinely repentant and turning to the Lord and just a temporary sorrow. I'm sorry. Being sorry over just the way things have gone. And you see this in Exodus chapter nine, verses twenty seven through thirty two. This is during one of the plagues. It's the plague of, uh, of hail. And so God sends hail on Egypt and it decimates their crops. And Pharaoh looks at Moses and says, okay, okay, take it away. The Lord is right. I am wrong. Really sorry about that. Can you just make it stop? So Pharaoh uses the language of repentance, right? The Lord is right and I'm wrong. Please, please make it stop. And it's interesting. Moses says this to him. He says, I'm going to, and I'm paraphrasing. Moses says, I'm going to make it stop, but I know that you have not turned to the Lord. I know that as soon as it stops, you will turn back to your former ways. And he does, right? So, so Pharaoh, and even, even we see that, right, with the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh says, okay, get out. He lets him go. But he's not, he's not genuinely repentant. He's sorry that things have gone so poorly for them, and he's mad and he's upset that his economy and his country and now his family have been afflicted and been uh, punished. But he's not genuinely repentant. 
And we see that because he says, as soon as he's got some space to breathe, and as soon as he gets his wits about him, he says, let's go get him. Let's chase him out into the wilderness and let's bring him back. They belong to me. Now, you might, you might ask, now wait a second. Hadn't Pharaoh already been shown that the Lord was really powerful and could crush any of his attempts to uh, come get the Israelites? In the ancient world, the gods were incredibly fickle, right? They could change at a moment's notice. If they weren't happy with something or they didn't like the way something went, then they would, then they would just change, right? They would change. So it's possible in Pharaoh's mindset, right, it's possible that, yeah, the Lord worked in all those ways to get Israel out of here, but he may not work for them anymore. Our gods may be stronger this time. So let's go get them. Let's see what happens, right? So it's reasonable mythologically for Pharaoh to go get the Israelites. It may be that their God won't fight for them this time. But the one overarching truth of the God of the Bible is that he is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the Lord who fought for them in the plagues will fight for them again in the sea. In fact, that's what he wants to do. He is, he is lulling Pharaoh into a trap. He even tells him as much, right? He says in verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. So why? Why? Why is God doing all of this? It's repeated throughout the narrative. His aim is his own glory. So that's in verse 4. Look again in verse uh, 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go into the sea after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. Look again in verses 30 and 31. So the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used. The people feared the Lord. Right? All of it is for God's glory. Right at the beginning of the episode, God tells Moses and the people his plan. He doesn't tell them how he's going to make it happen, but he does tell them why. So that he will be glorified. So we need to talk about that. We need to talk about glory. What does the Bible mean when it talks about glory? The Hebrew word is something like kavod, right? And, and it literally means heavy or weighty. And it's used that way in several places. Things that are heavy are called kavod. In fact, oddly enough, uh, Pharaoh's heart is called heavy. Because in Egyptian lore, in the Egyptian afterlife, it was said that your heart would be taken and weighed on the scales. And what you wanted was for your heart to be equal to the light feather of truth and justice. If you were a good person, then your heart was as light as the feather of truth and righteousness. And God says over and over again that Pharaoh's heart is not light but heavy. Pharaoh's heart is full of sin and unrighteousness. So, in one sense, the word means heavy. But then in other parts, it's translated glory. Why? Why would a word that means heavy or weighty be translated glory? So, I want you to think about the people that are important to you. right? If you, so, if, if this morning, uh, you know, I'm standing up here and the Queen of England walked in that door and stood up here with me, right, one of us would be weightier than the other. And I don't mean heavier. Right? She's a little old lady, so I'm probably, I'm probably a little heavier than she is. Okay? Right? But one of us would be weightier. 
one of us would have more glory. And if you think about it, that we, we do that with certain people and certain things, right? We give, we give the most weight to what is most important to us. But that's also a sign that your life is really out of balance, right? Your life will be really out of whack or out of balance when you give weight or glory to the wrong things, right? When you put glory or the weight in its wrong, pla- in its wrong place, it actually destabilizes your life. And for many of you, your life looks like an absolute wreck because the weight is in the wrong place. The glory, you've put glory in something other than the Lord, who alone deserves the highest glory, right? And so God says, in essence, what God is saying is, I'm going to show Pharaoh that I am more glorious than he is. I am going to demonstrate my weightiness. This is why God should get the glory, because he's the one who deserves it. He's the one who deserves true Weightiness. He alone is worthy of my first and highest priority. And whenever my life doesn't reflect that truth, then I'm in sin and my life is out of balance. Pharaoh pursues because Pharaoh wants his own glory. And the best thing that God can do for us, for his people, is to demonstrate how much more glorious he is. Which brings us to the people's panic. And their unbelief, the blindness of unbelief. Watch what happens when Israel sees Egypt. Look here in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, right? That word is used to kind of capture your attention. It's surprise. Behold, the Egyptians were marching down on them. Right? So I want you to put your self in their shoes there on the shores of the Red Sea as they're encamped, right? The tent's been set up, the, the flocks are grazing over here, the kids are playing over here. Maybe, maybe lunch is, uh, is being prepared as, uh, as we speak. And then, right, there's a, there's a dust cloud in the distance. And they kind of look curiously like, what, what could that be? What's, what is that? And then as they, as they get closer... Right, they, you kind of squint, you look out there, and they see, oh no, oh God, it's it's the Egyptians, and they're and they're driving chariots. Right there, what would you do? What would you think? What would you feel? They panic. Right here, they are an unequipped, untrained army of slaves with their women and children and flocks and herds. And here comes the most well-equipped, well-trained army on the planet driving chariots. And so, understandably, the people panic. They panic. We don't want to be hard on them because they act like we would act. They're very afraid. I want you to listen to the bite in their words. Verse 11, they look at Moses It says they cry out to the Lord, but then they look at Moses and they say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? Which is meant to be sarcastic because there were plenty of graves in Egypt. Egypt was fascinated with death and the afterlife, right? I mean, every every 
pyramid has tombs underneath it. These people loved death and they loved thinking about death. So there were plenty of graves in Egypt. They're angry and they're scared. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? What have you done to us bringing us out here? Didn't we tell you? Didn't, isn't this what we told you when we were in Egypt and you were coming and saying you wanted to get us out? Didn't we, didn't we tell you to leave us alone? Now, it's not actually recorded that they said that. There was one point where they told Moses to leave because it made their work harder. But it was clear that all of them, things have changed. Their temperament has changed. They're upset. They're panicking. They're unbelieving. Look at the end of verse 12. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. See, that's what unbelief does, doesn't it? Right? It, it drops these blinders over your eyes, and so you are, you are unable to see what God can do. You are able to see, unable to see God's possibility in the impossible. All, all these people can see is, all right, it's either, it's either death or servitude. I'm either going to die right here or serve the Egyptians for the rest of my life. Who cares that God told me that he was going to set us free from that servitude? Who, who cares that I saw in ten successive progressive ways these plagues coming from God, devastating the Egyptians? I mean, think about all that they had seen God do. Progressively, they had seen him attack Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They had seen God work in such a way that it had liberated them. They had heard God's word promised to them repeatedly through Moses. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to get out. I'm going to take you to the land flowing with milk and honey. They had God's words and they had God's deeds. Good grief, they have a pillar of fire, of smoking fire right in front of them. But as soon as they see the enemy, they want to go back. As soon as they see what's difficult, they look back at Egypt and they say, you know, it wasn't so bad there after all. It was certainly better to get beaten with a whip than it is to die by the sea here in the wilderness. That's what that's what unbelief does to us. It blinds us. It blinds us to reality. Right. We look back on our maybe our our lives in sin and we think, man, that was, those are pretty good days. Right. It's certainly harder to be free of them than it was to serve them. Maybe we could go back. I and mean, it blinds us to the possibility of what, of what God can do. Say, well, I'm just going to die. Those are the only two options they can see. Servitude or death. That's what unbelief does. They blind, it blinds us to the reality right in front of us. And we forget that God is good. We forget that he's faithful. We forget his promises and how he's answered in the past. We turn inward. Self-preservation becomes our only aim. Pharaoh isn't the only one who needs to see God's glory. God's people need to see God's glory. Calvin puts it this way. He says, God closes their way of escape so that he can display his wonderful power. What's, what's that circumstance for you? 
What are those moments in your life where you've, where you've seen God, contrary to what you wanted him to do, where you've seen God close the way of escape so that he can display his wonderful power? Because I, I want you to see that's where they are. There's nowhere to go. They don't have any weapons. Or at least if they do, they're no match for Pharaoh's chariots. There is no human means of escape or salvation. And so they are, in one sense, in and of themselves, without hope. And that's what brings us to God's power and the glorious grace of his salvation. I want you to look at how Moses responds to their unbelieving sarcasm. Three commands for three questions there in verse 13. Moses says to the people, fear not. Don't be afraid. Excuse me? Can you, can you see what I see? They have, they have chariots and horses and armor and, and bows and arrows. Fear not. Stand firm. Don't go anywhere. Don't run. Wouldn't do you any good. Stand firm. And see. See what? What I can see is my enemy approaching. And what I can see is that there's a a huge body of water behind me. That's what I can see. So Moses, what are you telling me to see that I don't see? Moses says, see the salvation of the Lord that he will do for you. There is no salvation you can work for yourself. God's going to have to handle this one. And then he says in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. And you have only to remain silent. Friends, we call this salvation by grace through faith alone. There is nothing that we can contribute. Just just like the Israelites, the Israelites could contribute nothing to their rescue. So also, we contribute nothing to our salvation. We simply must wait and see. And so, Moses invites them to see. And then, what happens next is one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. And I don't want, I don't want your familiarity with it. If you've grown up in church, you've been around the Bible some, I don't... Maybe this is familiar to you, so it doesn't seem all that extraordinary. I, I want you to try to, to relive some of the, the shock of this moment. The, the crossing of the Red Sea is the moment of Old Testament history. It will be remembered in songs and in prophecies and in scriptures for the rest of Israel's history. Right? Uh, it carries on into the New Testament. This is the moment of salvation for the Old Testament people. So it was important to them, right? And I want you to, to capture the shock of this, because this is, this is what God tells Moses. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Right? I want you to imagine being Moses there, and Moses kind of like, okay, God, they're about to mutiny on me here, like I'm going to need something. He says, all right, put the staff in the hand in the air and divide the sea. Excuse me? 
Yeah, I want you to, I'm going to divide the sea because the people are going to walk over on dry ground. By the way, I mean, it repeatedly says dry ground. That word dry ground doesn't mean marsh. It doesn't mean mud. It doesn't mean swamp. It means firm, dry ground, no water. So God is going to do something so completely that there is no doubt that he's in it, right? He is going to make this massive body of water split in two and dry the ground so that his people can walk. He's making a highway through a great lake. That's what he's doing, right? If you can imagine that Lake Michigan is bigger than it is from Chicago over to West Michigan, he makes a division, all right? And he sends the people through it. That's what he does. He makes a highway out of the water. God makes a way where there is no way. And just in case, as some have said, like, well, it wasn't really all that miraculous. This was like a shallow part of the water. No, no, no. It says that the, wa- the water became walls on their left and right. The word for walls there doesn't mean like low retaining wall. It means towering walls to protect a city. These are, these are big walls of water, which would be terrifying enough to walk through, right? That's what God does. He makes a way where there is no way. What about the Egyptians? Look at verse 23. The Egyptians pursued. Now, um, so we had, when our kids were younger, we had strollers. Uh, and if you've ever... Probably if you have kids, you've had a stroller as well. The wheels on strollers, not usually like, you know, all-terrain grade. Um, But I remember early on when we would go to the beach with our little ones taking uh, one of our strollers, which was all well and good until we got to the actual beach, right? And then those narrow little wheels with no tread whatsoever basically become cement blocks. And I'm like pushing... Like, at that point, you wish you had a sled instead of a stroller, right? So you can imagine that when Pharaoh's chariots, with their narrow wooden wheels bounded in metal, carrying the weight of an armored chariot plus a horse and a rider, or multiple riders, right? As they head into the silt in the bottom of the sea, well, they start getting stuck, right? What God does to the Egyptians is, is he, it says he looks down... In the morning watch, which was the, uh, the time between 2 and 6 a.m., it was usually the time if you were going to do a surprise attack right before dawn. That's when the Egyptians make their move, okay? And they head into the sea after the Israelites, right? The pillar moves out of the way. They can see their prey escaping, and so they say, let's go get them. Pharaoh's going to be really upset if we don't. And so they head in, right? And what does it say? The Lord throws them into a panic, Israel was panicked, and then God guides them through the sea. And now it's the Egyptians' turn to be panicked, right? Their wheels start clogging up, their chariots start bogging down, and they say, the Lord fights for Israel against Egypt. What God said would happen comes true. He said, I'm going to get glory. They're going to know that I fight for you. And Egypt realizes what's happening. Right. They realize there they are stuck in the middle of the Red Sea. Their officers are in a panic. The, the, the troops are all kind of figuring out which way to go. The chariots won't move. And they realize that they're lost. They realize that the Lord is fighting for his people. And then God tells Moses, 
Put your hand back over the sea and close it down. And he does. And he drowns every single one of them. Every one of the the chariots and horses that went into the sea are crushed. They're covered. Right? What was the result? Verse 30. And so the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 31. Israel saw the great power. Now, my Bible translates that power, but really it obscures the original, right? Because the word for power here is actually hand. There's a contrast going on. It says God saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the great hand that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so... God's hand is mightier than Egypt's. God's strength is greater than Egypt's. God's salvation is more powerful than the pursuit of the enemy. And what's the result? Israel believes. It says, right, verse 31, So the people feared the Lord. Do you remember they had been greatly afraid of the Egyptians? They had been greatly afraid that they were going to get captured or or be killed. And then God takes them through the sea and puts them on the shore on the opposite side. And now they fear him. And then what does it say? They believed in the Lord and in his servant. The aim or the end rather is their faith. They believe. They've seen what God can do and they trust him. They trust his servant, Moses. You know, salvation is found in the place where it is least expected. Think about that. Think about that standing on the shore of the sea. Usually, walking into a huge body of water is not a good idea. Right? Uh, In fact, that would mean certain death, especially in the ancient world, because people didn't know how to swim. Right? Um, I learned this fun factoid. The British Navy only started training sailors how to swim in the 1900s. Right? So that means that, that most people, even those working on boats, didn't know how to swim. The reason the Greeks beat the Persians in 482 B.C. is because they actually spent some time training their sailors how to swim. And the Persian sailors couldn't, and so they drowned. And so, in the ancient world, right, learning how to swim was just not something you did. You didn't go in the water. The water was a a deadly place. And so there the Israelites are. And they're trapped behind them on, on the water. And God says, I want you to go into the water. I'm going to make a way where there is no way, and you have to go in to the sea. You have to go into and through the place of death so that you can get to life. And then the same sea through which the Israelites walked crushes their enemies. So I want you to think about this. Both groups of people go into the water, but only one of them comes out. Both groups of people have to embrace the death of the sea, but only one of them is rescued. The other is crushed. And the reason that matters, the reason it matters that God makes a way when there is no way, 
is because he would do it again. Pharaoh is not the greatest enemy that people will ever face. Our greatest threat is actually not a man at all. Our greatest threat is sin and the death that follows it. Our great enemy is that old serpent, Satan, who uses our sin to keep us enslaved. Pharaoh is really just a type, a a puppet of that evil. And in and of ourselves, there's no way out. We're trapped. We cannot muster the strength. We don't have the skill to defeat these foes. Our enemy's fierce and we're trapped in our sin. So who can make a way where there is no way? And that's when God sends another leader, another servant like Moses. But this one is called a suffering servant. That's what Isaiah calls him, a suffering servant. Why the suffering servant? Because like the Egyptians, he would have to be crushed. Just like the Egyptians faced the crushing wrath of God, so Jesus faces the crushing wrath of God on the cross. And just like the Egyptians are covered in the sea, so Jesus is covered in the tomb. He goes into death. But unlike the Egyptians, he comes out of death. And he leads his people out of death into life on dry ground, as it were. Jesus is our Red Sea. And he is the greater Moses. He is the one who leads us through death into life. God makes a way where there is no way. He wins salvation. And so what that means is this. Just like the Israelites would have looked at the sea and said, that's death. So also, we would have looked at the cross and at the tomb and said, that's death. But because of what God has done in Christ, what looks like death actually becomes life. The cross and the tomb, death itself is no longer an enemy to be feared. It is a conquered foe. And because of Jesus, we can walk right through it. We follow him all the way through on dry ground, and we arrive on the shore on the other side. So we can see the salvation that God works for us in Christ. Trust in him and have life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Red Sea. And we pray, Lord, that we would see our Savior in it. That you are a God who makes a way where there is no way. That you are a God who uses death to open the door to life. That you have put yourself in the place of an enemy. You have brought on yourself the judgment, the wrath, Lord Jesus, that was rightly deserved by us so that we could walk free, your beloved, so that we could enter into life on the other side of the sea. Father, would you bless your word? Uh, As we come now to communion, Lord, would you bless it? Make it a means of grace to us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.